0: June of 2020, our class had its procession. reading classic novels soon became our one obsession, with COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go, so we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books, we're killing trees, our housemates and our spouses are saying stop it please, we're reading books, we're killing cedars, at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Is our teacher, and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please! Promise. We're reading books, we're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Jury has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast. Don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure. But- School for wayward readers.
1: Hello and welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about reading old-timey books. This is Episode 7, Kissin' Cousins. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Okama Theatre Group, or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to YTG.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four... I almost said awkward readers, but it's wayward readers, including myself, uh, each episode we sit down, we talk about the week's assigned chapters, we make presentations, which we call reader responses, and we answer questions to compete for arbitrary points. Our educator and the grantor and grunter of points is the oft prickly Miss Charlotte. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, sometimes into the negative numbers, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but the shame will burn you as surely as hot magma. When we complete our reading of Weathering Heights, all these points will be totaled up, and the winner will get, um, you know, a thing. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email us at readers at ytg.jp. Our wayward readers are in alphabetical order by first name. Myself, Andrew Wollner, Theatermaker. Hi. Uh, Daniel Wishes. Puppeteer and Podcaster.
2: Hey everyone, I'm an awkward reader.
1: Dr. Emmy Doe, former farmer and exerciser extraordinaire.
3: Hello, hello.
1: And Judy Ito, overworked salaryman.
0: <laughs> hello. I don't know if I like the introduction to that.
1: <laughs> As I mentioned, we also have Miss Charlotte Sampson on hand to lead us through our Victorian adventures in literature.
4: Good morning, class. Good morning. Good
3: evenings.
1: Morning evening, yeah, we should met Charlotte is in a different time zone from the rest of us. We're in Japan. she is in Canada. It's night for us and morning for her. anyway. welcome, everybody. Let's get reading
2: Chapter Twenty. Nellie takes Linton to Wuthering Heights. He asks a bunch of questions and she tells him a bunch of lies on arrival. Heathcliff inspects the boy and determines that the child is a disappointing piece of shit. Nellie is worried that Heathcliff might not take care of Linton, but Heathcliff reassures her, saying, Don't worry, of course I'll take care of it. It's my property, I need it alive, at least for a little while, so I can use it to help enact my revenge. (laughs) And Nellie is like, Okay, cool, Mr. Heathcliff, boy! Chapter 21 Kathy wakes up and is upset to discover that Linton is gone but they make her feel better by lying to her because lying to children is just how they do things at the grange. Nelly runs into Wuthering Heights' housekeeper and asks how things are going with Linton and yeah, it's pretty much what you'd expect, he's sickly and gross and Heathcliff hates him. Time passes. Catherine takes Nelly for a walk. This is when Catherine's now 16. They take her looking for some birds or something and they stumble across Wuthering Heights. She meets Heathcliff and he invites her in to meet Linton. Nelly objects. And says, I know you have a secret evil plan. And Heathcliff says, that's absurd. My evil plan isn't secret at all. I'm going to get Catherine and Linton to fall in love and get married to make sure that I get Thrushcross Grange. And Nelly says, but why tell me, Mr. Heathcliff? And he says, because you're the narrator, Nelly. How else will the audience know <laughs> if I don't tell you? Cathy and Linton bond over making fun of Herodon being illiterate. Nellie tells Kathy not to tell her father about all of this. So when Kathy gets back to Thrushcross Grange, she tells her father about all of this. (laughs) Kathy is told that she can't go back to Wuthering Heights, so she starts a secret correspondence with Linton, and they start sending love letters back and forth. Nellie finds the letters and puts a stop to that monkey business. Chapter 22. Edgar gets a cold. Nellie and Kathy go for a walk. Kathy starts crying because she'll be sad and alone after Edgar and Nellie die. And Nellie reassures her by saying, Don't be sad, miss. There's a good chance you'll die before us. (laughs) Also, your father could live a long time unless, you know, you murder him by having a romance with Linton. (laughs) Heathcliff shows up and he tells Kathy, Hey, I just thought you should know that Linton is really heartbroken, that you stopped writing him, and he's probably going to die now because of that, and it's your fault. So, I'm going to be away for a week if you want to visit Linton and save his life. I mean, that would be cool, I guess. Otherwise, I guess he'll die. I don't actually care about him and neither does anyone else except for you. So, you know, no skin off our back. Bye! Kathy's heart is clouded in darkness. No, wait, that's understating it. Her heart is clouded in double darkness. Chapter 23. Nellie realizes that Kathy is going to Wuthering Heights no matter what. So she agrees to go along and witness the events... Because it's possible that one day she might need to tell the story to entertain a bored, foppish man. They see Linton, and he's just awful and cringy and cringe, and then cringy stuff happens, and then more cringy stuff, and he's like, don't kiss me, Kathy. Your lips will leave bruises on my delicate tissue paper-like skin. Oh, your voice hurts my ears. Everyone hates me. You should have visited me because writing is too physically exhausting for me. Hey, you're gonna marry me, right? And Kathy's like, uh, I, you know, I kind of think of you more like a brother. <laughs> and he's like, hey, speaking of marriage... My dad says that your mom hated your dad and was in love with my dad. She even like climbed through his window. There's a song about it. And they have a childish (laughs) argument that erupts into na 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 na. Kathy gets annoyed and kicks his chair. And he's like, oh, my God, you moved my chair. I think my ribs are broken. Oh, no, no, I fell out of the chair. And then there's more cringy stuff and cringe and cringe and cringy. And it's all cringy and horrible. And Nellie's like, well, there you have it, Kathy. He's a horrible piece of shit. Maybe you should marry somebody nicer and healthier and better looking, like maybe the baby from Eraserhead. And also, he's probably (laughs) going to die soon. And Kathy's like, oh, really, Nellie? But maybe he'll actually live a long time. Like, remember that thing you said earlier about my dad? Yeah, I'm throwing that back in your face now. (laughs) And also, I guess I actually love him even more now somehow because I love taking care of sick people and then nelly gets sick and kathy takes care of her and also she's taking care of her dad and uh she still has time to sneak out at night and take care of linton the end can you spot the mistake that i purposefully made in my recap to you
1: i was far too busy laughing
2: as As usual Uh... it's a subtle one Mm
4: -hmm. you want to tell him daniel or do yeah, you want to give him a chance? Us. Are you going to
1: give us a hint? Are,
2: well, do you give up or?
1: Yeah, I, I give up.
2: Okay. She doesn't kick his chair. She pushes it violently. Oh, <laughs> oh.
1: okay. That was sneaky. All right. Moving on to vocab corner. No deep dives this time. So a few things. A puling chicken. I'm assuming that's puling and not the misspelling of pulling chickens apparently make a whiny sound. And that's what puling describes. So a puling chicken is a whining chicken. And they're not talking about chickens. They're talking about someone being like a chicken. I think it was Harriton. It was Heathcliff and he was insulting somebody. Pinched. Yeah. So I'm assuming, because given the line is, heating not how the rest of us are pinched in winter. I think I looked that one up and I was like kind of searching for it. I think it just means like what it sounds like. Pinched means like deprived. Because they're talking about the housekeeper at Wuthering Heights is talking about how Linton's drinking all the milk, basically. Uh someone correct me if they think that's wrong. That was literally uh, a guess.
4: In the sense it's used, it, it, it's rather more specifically um m- means pinched with hunger. Um feeling hunger pangs,
1: in other words. Wow, I didn't realize they were that dependent on milk at Wuthering Heights for uh for sustenance.
2: Well that's that's all that Master Linton will consume. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, so you just think they could eat all the other stuff, you know? Um,
4: <laughs> I would only eat food if it's white.
1: Uh, so gomless is gormless, which is one of those words that, like, I've read forever and I kind of had an idea what it meant, so I decided to, like, I decided to look it up so I knew specifically what I meant, and it, it can just mean someone who's, like, kind of stupid and clumsy, but it could also mean, and I think it's maybe in this case leaning more towards someone who's, like, naive to the point of foolishness. Bathos. This is like a really interesting one. It's Heathcliff talking about heriton and he talks about, just says the bathos of coarseness and ignorance when he's talking about how he's made heriton like such a gross human. And so, bathos is like this literary term introduced by Alexander Pope, like in the 1700s sometime. And it generally means a ludicrous anticlimax. I'm quoting here a descent from the sublime to the ridiculous. I think, though, it comes from the Greek word meaning depth. Mm-hmm. And I think here it's being used simply as depth the depth of his coarseness and ignorance
4: yeah that's pretty accurate uh i think we can read it as a sort of uh, in the original sense that alexander pope wanted to use it it implied false depth it was applying something bombastic uh to something that's not really all that dramatic uh, it's using high language high epic language to describe really ordinary just mundane things uh So I think that there is a bit of a double meaning here. It can just literally mean depth. Like, he's really deeply ignorant, but deeply ignorant in a very mundane way that can't even be brought to the level of of high tragedy. It's just everyday, commonplace simpleness. Yes,
1: thank you, Miss Charlotte. Okay, here's one that's weird. I think Harriton refers to when he's insulting uh, Linton, he calls him, he's like, I wouldn't even hit you because you're so effeminate and you're a pitiful lath of a crater. This, I went down a rabbit hole trying to find this one. I know a lath is a thin strip of wood that you put under plaster, like when you're plastering walls, but in this case, is it covering the crater of a a volcano? Because the sense of like a crater in terms of like a, a, a shell crater wasn't in use till like later.
4: Anyone want to take a stab at what crater might be referring to here? I'll give you a hint. It's a dialect term, but one that's oh, based a on bitch. a familiar word. It's more of a way of pronouncing an English word with a very particular accent.
1: Daniel, you're the one who's got the most knowledge of Yorkshire accents. What do you think?
2: I don't know. Is it
4: Creature. That's correct, Daniel. It is creature. I'm going to give you two points for for adding that.
3: Slab of wood of a creature?
4: (laughs) Well, think of how Linton is described. He's weak and scrawny and altogether flimsy, and a lath of wood used in construction. It's not known for its durability. It's it was basically used before they had drywall to sort of very quickly fill in a section of wall so you don't just have bare beams.
1: Hmm. Well, it, Yeah, so you could put plaster on top of it. Yes. That makes more sense. Damn it, I didn't... Because it wasn't Joseph speaking. I didn't know it was bloody dialect.
4: Well, Heritans, they, they make mention of how Heritans getting the accent too.
1: Yes, hmm. that's true. All right, easy one. Diurnal just means the opposite of nocturnal. Here's here's another one though, that I couldn't figure out, though. Dark gray streamers describing a type of, like, a t- type of cloud. I was looking up uh, meteorological terminology and seeing if I could find, like, antiquated versions. I'm assuming it's a certain type or shape of cloud, but I have no idea what a streamer looks like. Whether it's called a streamer because it looks like it's all strung out, or it's a streamer because, like, a stream of rain is going to come out of it, or...
4: I admit I'm not certain either. I mean, I would just probably hazard the same guess. I, I, off the top of my head, can't think of any other notable examples of streamers in, in 19th century literature. Your assessment is probably correct. Those long sort of stringy clouds.
1: Moving on. Canty, uh, Emmy dropped this one in the list and also gave the definition for it. And uh, a cant- like someone who's Canty is cheerful and particularly actually lively. Because they're talking about, um, Nellie's talking about her, her mother, her grandmother being, like, living to 80 and being a canty dame still. So, lively, full of life, cheerful, that kind of thing. (laughs) Bonnie. Um, yeah. And the last one, this is one of those words that, like, I've read for years and kind of had, like, a, a distinct impression of, but I'm like, you know what, I should probably know specifically what this means, and it's Garrett. So I knew it was kind of, like, a shitty place to live. But apparently it specifically refers to an attic room or rooms, typically under a, a pitched roof. So you've got the roof that like that your ceiling slants down. That's what a garret is. And all these years, I was today years old when I found that out. And I'm sorry, if that was an obvious one, guys. All right. That's what I've got.
4: Thank you, Andrew. Now, uh, I think we're going on to read a response, correct? So, uh, Emmy, why don't you remind us what you are presenting
3: All right, so I am doing my reader response as a spooky campfire story. So I want you all to think that we are in the forest around a campfire. There's some howling winds in the distance, sort of. Not so much that it's actually (laughs) gonna—it's actually gonna blow out the fire. All right. So is everyone comfortable? Because the wind <laughs> yes. in the trees tonight reminds me of the story I heard about these parts. Are you ready
1: to hear it? I don't know. I can't sit in a chair.
3: <laughs> well, you're sitting on a log. Oh, okay, good.
4: <laughs> so the Surely that goes. would be worse. <laughs>
1: no my butt is a very particular shape
4: I think a, camp <laughs> like campfire, a campfire would kill fire. Linton like Linton yes, would just inhale some smoke and just uh-huh. instantly drop I've got ashes all over me <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry sorry Emmy, we're interrupting your <laughs> yeah, thing to make Linton spooky, jokes spooky or,
3: spooky spooky mm-hmm. right. so the story goes like this just up the valley from where we're camping out tonight there's this creepy old house We'll call it Wuthering Heights. And in that creepy old house lives this creature named Heathcliff. Now, Heathcliff isn't your ordinary monster. What's masterful about Heathcliff is that when you meet him, you're almost certain he's actually human, because he can be quite charming and spins a good story, but unbeknownst to his victims, he's able to brainwash even the toughest of minds and bend them to his will without them ever suspecting it. Hmm... Now, from what I hear, there was once this girl, Kathy, who lived pretty close to Wuthering Heights in a place called The Grange. Kathy's pretty bright and independent, strong, but also feminine. And her entire life, Kathy's parents have worked hard to keep Kathy from Heathcliff's powers, sheltering her because they know that Heathcliff has his sights set. On Kathy marrying his son, Linton. But of course, try as they might, it's impossible to keep Heathcliff's powers from crossing over the moors. And one day, as Kathy is frolicking through the fields, Heathcliff appears and starts unleashing his brainwashing superpowers. Rendering Kathy incapable of rational thought and becoming completely brainwashed. She almost immediately falls in love with Linton, despite Linton being a whiny brat. When she goes home that night... Her father and Nanny tried desperately to reverse the Heathcliff's curse. And though they think they have succeeded, they are no match for Heathcliff. And it takes burning love letters and the threat of her father dying from grief to get her to resist succumbing to moving to Wuthering Heights immediately. But even while on high alert, Heathcliff still manages to penetrate the Grange force field, and soon Kathy, despite all warnings, is back at Wuthering Heights smothering Linton in kisses. So you hear, so you see, here in this part of town, you've got to beware of the Heathcliff curse. Even the strongest among us is liable to fall victim to his brainwashing. If you're not careful, you'll end up completely throwing your life away at the mercy of this selfish, conniving beast. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I'm not sleeping tonight. <laughs> no. Nope. I tried. It's really
3: hard.
1: <laughs> you kind of cross genres with the force field, though. Yeah. We went from campfire stories <laughs> to science fiction. When did Thrushcross Grange get a force field? <laughs> I, I can just imagine, like, Edgar think, running over to these Victorian controls. Shields up! <laughs>
2: Nelly Joke. Reverse the priority of the neutron flow! Joseph is like, oh now I gotta go back to my home planet. <laughs> <laughs> and he up a, he home. That
1: makes sense because in my mind Joseph looks like looks like um riffraff from
2: Rocky Horror Picture Shows, so. <laughs>
4: I was yeah, that's kinda of where I went too.
2: I was imagining a more like Lurch from the Addams family, but <laughs>
4: See, I was kind of picturing him like the creepy, the creepy housekeeper in Harry Potter. The old guy, the guy with the, with the cat. What's his name? One Googling Five this? points for whoever tells me the name and, uh, and, um, keeps me from embarrassing myself any further. Is it Argus Filch? Oh. That's it. Argus Filch. Filch. Okay, okay five points to Andrew.
1: Yeah, that's how I imagine Joseph. I just pulled up a picture of him. That that's yeah, that's what Joseph looks like in my mind, basically.
4: Alright, so Emmy. Refresh my memory. Was Spooky Campfire Story the explicit genre you were yeah, assigned? Yeah. Or was it
3: The original assignment was Campfire
4: Story. Okay, okay. <laughs> under those circumstances and under that restriction, I'll give I'll give you a B for effort. <laughs> um just because While there are other sections of the story that lend themselves well to a campfire story, um, this is... I think I mentioned this last week. We're now entering what I consider the teen romance section of the novel, which... I mean, unless it's one of those teen romances where there's, like, a murderer with a hook hand or something, it's hard to make a campfire story out of it. So admirable job one (laughs) thing that i do appreciate is all of your descriptions of heathcliff as this inhuman monster when actually and and maybe we can discuss this as we discuss the rest of these chapters in these chapters heathcliff kind of isn't acting as bad as he has, mostly... Well,
1: oh, we're all reacting to that, Charlotte. <laughs> You're all reacting, we're all reacting to that. To that. And, and I'm Charlotte. going to I'm...
4: try to make a case for Heathcliff in this episode.
1: Wow. Not a strenuous Ooh. case, I, but... Yeah. Uh, I, think, well, I think there's a couple of us at least who have the distinct impression, the exact opposite impression, is this is the chapter where
4: he's like the most evil. Yeah. Well, why don't we... Jump into discussion, then. Mm -hmm. And since we're already talking about it... Now, this is actually really cool, because everyone in the class is against me. Which, okay, despite the persona that I put on, I really, really like it when that happens. Because it means that I could be completely coming out of left field with this interpretation. Or... I might convince you by the end of it. Either way, some of us will have learned something, hopefully. Either I will have a chance to take a second look and go, "Eh, now you know what the class is, right? Heathcliff is just a piece of shit, and he's a huge piece of shit in these chapters as well. Or, maybe what I have to say will bring you around. But... Why don't we get at that issue through one of the prepared discussion questions that I that I have here. Okay, so why don't we discuss Heathcliff's master plan? This is one of the sections in the novel where we get Heathcliff expositing his master plan to Nellie all about, well, Does somebody want to fill us in on exactly how the master plan is supposed to work?
3: The overall plan is for Kathy and Linton to get married, so he can get the Smithsgrange, the property. I cannot find where exactly he explains it. Looking for now.
2: Yeah. So if if Linton dies, which he totally is, then Heathcliff is going to get it, but there might because because Linton is the male heir it shouldn't go to Kathy it should go to Linton but he's like yeah well just in case so there's no arguing I'll also get Kathy to marry Linton so that there won't be any argument at all about me getting Thrushcross Grange
1: yeah and with the additional with the additional like haha of heriton is basically there in order to suffer as Heathcliff suffered therefore avenging Heathcliff upon um, Hinley, who's been dead for years.
2: But also at the same time, the more he tortures Herodin, the more Herodin becomes like Heathcliff and then Heathcliff likes him more.
4: Yes. (laughs) So let's look at the exact passage where he lays out his master plan. And it's pretty short. It's in chapter 21 in about the first quarter of it. It's a little awkward, by the way. When I'm actually teaching a course and I have an assigned text, I can just sort of go to the page number. But, uh, thanks to the magic of technology, we can at least, uh, do a sort of just search for the passage. So, uh, we're looking for the, uh, dialogue passage, uh, that starts with, my design is as honest as possible. So, Nellie is talking to Heathcliff and bringing up her objections as to the uh, connection between Kathy and Linton. Uh, The harm of it is that her father would hate me if he found I suffered her to enter your house. And I'm convinced you have a bad design in encouraging her to do so, I replied. My design is as honest as possible. I'll inform you of its whole scope, he said, that the two cousins may fall in love and get married. "'I'm acting generously to your master. "'His young chit has no expectations, "'and should she second my wishes, "'she'll be provided for at once "'as joint successor with Linton.' "'Now, let's look at this next part. "'As we discussed, "'this is sort of wrinkle of property law. "'If Linton died,' I answered, "'and his life is quite uncertain, "'Catherine would be the heir.' "'No, she would not,' he said. "'There is no clause in the will "'to secure it so.' His property would go to me, but to prevent disputes, I, desp- I desire their union and am resolved to bring it about. So, yes, Daniel?
2: I have a question. So after mm-hmm. he said that, couldn't Nellie go back to Edgar and be like, Mr. Edgar, I think you should add a clause in the wheel that says that Kathy will get it. <laughs> property law
4: especially as it concerned married women's property, was... Oh, how should I put this? Incredibly fucked up in that, on marriage, a woman's property just... Unless there were specific arrangements, like specific contractual arrangements, made ahead of time regarding the disposition of the young lady's property... Just reverted, just defaulted to her husband. So anything that happened to be in Kathy's name would pass to her husband. And then it would revert to, once the property was owned by the husband, revert to the next nearest male kin to the husband. In practice, an arrangement like the one that Heathcliff is trying to put forward would not have gone off quite so smoothly. There could have been potential legal objections. Like, he brings up the fact of the will. It would have been possible if Edgar Linton expressed in his will that the property should be under Cathy's name. The problem always goes back to the fact that male heirs and male next of kin were always preferred in the line of inheritance. Basically, if you were a woman and you owned property and then you got married, poof, out of your hands at that point. There were very few recourses that a married woman had for holding onto her property. So Heathcliff's plan is kind of convoluted, but I mean, the law could make it work.
2: I love the mental image of Emily Bronte going to the lawyer in her town, being like, "Hello, uh, I'm writing a story. Don't tell <laughs> anyone I'm pretending to be a boy, but could you fact check this for me? I, it's really important to me that the family law is accurate.
4: <laughs> I mean, I could talk about 19th century family law for hours. That's kind of my job though, um, but not in this podcast specifically let's 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 move on. We were talking about Heathcliff's plan. Yeah, we're talking about (laughs) Heathcliff's plan. What are the methods that he uses to make sure that his plan goes off without a hitch? Because, I mean, the big thing is that Kathy has to marry Linton. So what steps does he take in that direction?
2: Well, he makes... One thing he does is he makes sure that Kathy won't fall in love with Herodin by making him stupid. He
4: he brings up Harriton so that he will be this incredibly just limited in scope person with zero education, whose concept of the world does not extend much beyond the bounds of Wuthering Heights and sort of the moorland surrounding it. So that's, yeah, that's one part of the master plan. What does he do for Linton? Like what is his disposition towards Linton, in order to ensure that Linton is, you know, the stud that's going to somehow win Cathy's heart? I'm a stud.
2: <laughs> does does he hose Linton off with of a garden hose before he leaves so he doesn't <laughs> smell as bad? <laughs> Does, did he? Did Heathcliff actually write all those letters to Kathy? Like pen them so that so that Linton wouldn't sprain his delicate little fingers. I, I don't know. Writing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts my hand. He actually says that I get out of breath. I'm so so physically tiring. <laughs> Well, the the second the
3: second part, he 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 says that Linton's gonna die without Kathy. Is, is
4: that what you mean? I'm actually referring to, and this is again something he says very plainly to Nellie. It's in chapter twenty, actually. So this is close to the bottom of chapter twenty. Nellie is asking whether Heathcliff is going to treat Linton well, and. Mm. She says, I hope you'll be kind to the boy, Mr. Heathcliff, or you'll not keep him long. And he's all you have a kin in the wide world that you will ever know, remember. Does anyone want to read Heathcliff's response, if you're there at the text? The paragraph beginning, I'll be very kind to him?
3: I'll be very kind to him, you needn't fear, he said, laughing. Only nobody else must be kind to him. I'm jealous of monopolizing his affection. And to begin my kindness, Joseph brings the lads some breakfast. Harriton, you infernal calf, be gone to your work. Yes, no, he added when they departed. They did departed. My son is prospective owner of your place, and I should not wish him to die till I was certain of being his successor, because he's mine, and I want the triumph of seeing my descendant fairly lord of their estates, my child hiring their children to till their father's land for ages. That is the sole consideration which can make me endure the wealth. I despise him for himself, and I hate him for the memories he revives. But that consideration is sufficient. He's as safe with me and shall be tended as carefully as your master tends his own. I have a room upstairs, furnished for him in handsome style. I've engaged a tutor, also, to come three times a week, from twenty miles distance, to teach him what he pleases to learn. I've ordered Hareton to obey him. And in fact, I've arranged everything with a view to preserve the superior and gentleman in him, above his associates. I do regret, however, that he so little deserves the trouble. If I wished any blessing in the world, it was to find him a worthy object of pride, and I'm bitterly disappointed with the way-faced, whining wretch.
4: Thank you. I'll give you a point for volunteering that reading.
2: Yes. But Miss Charlotte... Yes, Daniel. Your question was, what does Heathcliff do to make Linton more desirable to Kathy? And devil's advocate, devil's advocate, some people might say that none of those things that Heathcliff did actually would have made Linton more (laughs) desirable to Kathy. Or any other human being, for that matter.
4: Well, this leads me to the next part of my discussion question. Do you think it works? Or do you think it's gonna work, rather? I'm a regular Don Juan. And rather, how well does it work in terms of making Linton desirable?
1: I mean, the not killing him part works out real well, but that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, he's not dead, so she can fall in love with him. But he's just, it's like, basically, he's so unlikable. And Kathy just takes pity on him and that's just a i mean that was just luck in terms of a quirk of her personality because heathcliff doesn't know her that well he didn't i don't think he would have known her well enough to to do that
2: unless he like went he, like every night he snuck over to other uh, over to thrush house grange and like hypnotically whispered to her in her sleep like
0: you're going to like sick gross little
2: boys <laughs> and she was like oh yeah 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 okay it's like and, you know
4: so here's the part where I'm going to try to bring it back around to my earlier sort of thesis for this episode. So bearing in mind, we have this idea that Heathcliff's plan is to somehow make Linton seem totally desirable. Just just make Kathy thirst after this little wiener. <laughs> Sorry, the turn of phrase.
1: <laughs> Thirsting after a little wiener. <laughs>
4: My wiener isn't little. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Focusing, focusing. Given that that's Heathcliff's plan, and that, boy, he's got a tough job ahead of him in terms of making Linton seem desirable, why don't we talk about what role Nellie Dean plays in these four chapters? This is the section of the novel where it becomes incredibly apparent the degree to which Nellie Dean is comfortable lying. She's already lied a lot, but mostly through sort of half-truths and omission. I want us to talk about the whoppers that Nellie Dean lays down in these four chapters. And I want to know, did, did anyone pick up on that as you were reading it? Daniel, I see you nodding. Whoppers, big lies, huge lies, just bare falsehoods. Daniel, what are some of the falsehoods that you found?
2: I mean, that chapter 20, like the, almost the entire chapter is just her lying about stuff. I mean, you know, Linton's asking questions like, who is this Heathcliff? Oh, he's your dad. Is he nice? Oh, yeah, he's great. Well, how come he doesn't talk to my mom? Oh, you know, your mom was, she was sick. So, you know, it's just one lie after another. It's like everything she says is a lie. It's It would be easier to pick out the things she said that were true. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, then it's, and then it's the same thing after Linton leaves. They just lie to Kathy, like, nonstop. Like, oh, yeah, he had, you know, he had a thing he needed to do, so he couldn't, uh, yeah, you'll see him tomorrow, probably. <laughs> and then it's 16 years later. Or not 16 years later, but you know what I mean. It's, it's all lies. Fire, liar, pants on fire.
4: Okay, uh, four points to Daniel for, for laying it out quite succinctly. Nellie Dean, in these chapters, is incredibly manipulative in how she represents the situation to both Linton and Kathy. So we've talked about some of the lies that she tells Linton. What are some of the lies that she tells Kathy? And she's already told a few in previous chapters. So, what are the big Kathy lies, or, or rather, what are the big Nelly lies that she tells Kathy here?
1: I think the big one is about Edgar's like three month cold, even like 100, 100 whatever years ago, 150, 170, whatever. Oh, no, it's more than that because this story takes place even mm-hmm. earlier. So, like 200 years ago, I think they know if someone has a cold for three months, they're probably going to
4: die. Um, I mean, not, not guaranteed, but. Yeah, if they're that consistently sick, it's most likely evidence of something bigger than just a cold. Yes, Daniel.
2: And I just I love how that lie kind of comes back later in what I found to be a humorous way, where Kathy is like, "Yeah, and you know, Linton just has a cold, right?" <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, that's all that's wrong with him. He just has a cold." Sure. All right.
4: What are some of the measures that Nellie takes? To keep Kathy and Linton apart from each other. Burns their love letters. Yeah. Burns their love letters. What else does she do? Threatens Kathy that she's gonna tell her dad. Basically blackmails Kathy. You know, I'll show your love i I'll, I'll show these love letters to your dad, and he won't like it. She she begs just to keep one of them. And i mean it's kind of a dramatic passage but you know everyone in in Wuthering heights is just so extra where she grabs one of them out of the fire <laughs> like this is i would put forward an incredible act of emotional manipulation and control on nelly dean's part am, am i alone in thinking that or is everyone kind of along with me here i'm supportive of nelly dean
1: I mean, it's I think you're right that it's manipulation, but she's trying to it's it's like if I manipulate someone from walking down, falling down a spiked pit, (laughs) I'm kind of still doing the right thing. And she's kind of like, hey, hey, Kathy, maybe you don't want to. Maybe hey look look over here look oh I think I saw a bird over there I think yeah let's walk this way let's walk this way for a while and not where that 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 leaf leaf area is le- loosely covering a spike tiger trap is it wrong to lie basically is it wrong to lie if like you're hiding someone in the house and like the police are coming to like find them and they're completely innocent and you know like sometimes it's okay to lie sometimes it's okay to manipulate people
2: my problem with Nelly is that she wasn't doing a good enough job because not, none <laughs> yeah. of her lives worked or were, like, efficient yeah. at all. It's like, come on, you could try harder than that. <laughs>
4: yeah.
3: I think her actions are more understandable than the previous chapters.
4: C- can you elaborate on that, Judy?
3: Well, like, I can see why she's doing what she's doing. She is manipulative, but... Mm, and sometimes, like, I think... It's not in her place exactly to do it, but right now she's, like, the only mediator in the family. She's acting like this bridge, I guess, from Thrush Cross Grange to Wuthering Heights.
4: hmm I- Actually, yeah, I like that metaphor. I'm gonna give you two... I'll give you three points for that. She is the one who spends most of the time going back and forth between Thrush Cross Grange and Wuthering Heights. Like... Edgar doesn't go there. She does whatever she can to keep Kathy away from it. Not always to great success, as, as we see, or as we, we will see. It's sort of hinted towards the end um, that Kathy's been sneaking out.
1: Are you laughing at the same thing I'm laughing at, Emmy? <laughs> I think you're laughing at the same thing I'm laughing at. We'll get to that. Sorry, Charlotte. No,
4: on. no, let's get to it now.
1: I mean, you just mentioned that last, that last passage that was not, sneaking out was actually not the first thing that came to my mind when they, <laughs> when I read that passage. Which, which passage? The the one at wow. the end of, was it chapter 23?
2: Yeah. How did, how did you interpret it? I, I
1: mean, why don't you, why don't, why, why don't you, why don't you tell, tell them how we interpreted it? <laughs> <laughs> Do I not have a dirty enough mind
2: or something? Yeah, I Yeah, I'm
4: trying to, like, what's, what's your interpretation then, Andrew? I Emmy, mean, you're going to make me say this?
1: Okay, I said her days were divided between us, but the master retired early, and I generally needed nothing after six o'clock, thus the evening was her own. Poor thing, I never considered what she did with herself after tea. And though frequently, when she looked in to bid me good night, I remarked a fresh color in her cheeks and a pinkness over her slender fingers. Instead of fancying the line borrowed from a cold ride across the moors, I laid it to the charge of a hot fire in the library. So, Yes, that last bit, this fancy line. So, yes, obviously she's been riding over to Wuthering Heights. But until I got to that line, I was not thinking about I was that, not thinking that's what it meant. I was thinking she was like having thoughts about Linton. <laughs> and, you know, you
2: letting do. her fingers
1: do the walking. <laughs>
2: she's she's, in a, she's got a whole library, and the best she can do is think about I know, right? Oh, God.
4: I mean, she was very attached to those love letters. Yeah, no, I'm, I just.
1: You know, like. <laughs> teenage girls in love she comes in flushed yeah <laughs> come on
2: i I love how critical nelly is of the content of those love letters she's like these are terribly written <laughs> a lot of it is clearly plagiarized they just copied out of books this is really crap I think she
1: calls them trash actually
2: yeah yeah babyish babyish trash she, see she says all kinds of things
1: <laughs> she really doesn't like linton
2: if Nellie is making Linton, like, it's clearly, she's the one telling the story, and she hates him. I wonder if she's actually making him sound a bit worse than he actually was. Like, it seems exaggerated. Could anyone be that pathetic and, like, exist? Like, I feel like this is Nellie being like, oh my god, he's just, he, 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 she, she touched his chair and he fell out and started rolling on the floor. And he's like,
0: my skin is burning from the carpet.
2: It really feels like she's exaggerating
0: a bit.
4: Well, Daniel, I'm glad that you brought that up. The fact that this is Nellie Dean telling the story, right? And you've brought up that, well, maybe Linton wasn't quite the little wiener that Nellie makes him out to be. Maybe he did have some redeeming qualities. And maybe during their time together, Kathy did kind of like Linton. Despite his many obvious faults, there may have been hidden depths within him The point is, we don't know. And the only person who can tell us is the biggest liar in the novel. Heathcliff is very honest when he speaks to Nellie Dean about what he wants to do. But do we believe necessarily that those are the exact words that Heathcliff used? Is there some room, because nobody else was there to witness that conversation where Heathcliff lays out his master plan, could this be Nellie Dean making free with the facts of the case? And this is where I want to bring it down to my argument for this section, which is that Heathcliff might not have done that much to encourage the romance he may very well have thought that that would be a good way to get access to thrush Cross Grange. like there's so much corroborating evidence that heathcliff is a grasping piece of shit that i can believe that but i i'm going to suggest that this is kind of more damage control on Nellie dean's part for the role that she played in inadvertently encouraging the relationship by making linton seem like forbidden fruit she tries so hard to keep the two apart when there is such well maybe it's not clear affection romantically but there's definitely a connection between cathy and linton there's the, the those letters that she adores is there some room given the unreliability Nellie Dean as a narrator already, for the notion that she's trying to cover her ass for having built up Linton as this inaccessible, angelic ideal, when maybe if Kathy had been able to spend more time with the little wiener, she might have just realized he wasn't worth shit anyway. Whoa! Does that sit well, or, or, or are you still skeptical?
2: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, there's just things in the story that seem dubious, like the the fact that Heathcliff just monologues. <laughs> kind of I know, right? It's, it seems like something she definitely could have just made up.
4: <laughs> we already know that Nellie Dean makes up all sorts of details and describes all sorts of motives to people, and is quite free- with bending the truth in that regard so that's kind of why i want to bring it around to heathcliff being not that bad still bad but not as bad as nelly is making him out at the very least maybe not as calculated as nelly dean represents him like there's there's reason to believe that that absolutely is his plan but the particular malice that Nellie Dean sees behind it. Let's remember the material facts of the situation. Kathy does not have really any marriage prospects. Heathcliff says that, says as much, and it's true. Edgar Linton, using Nellie as sort of his agent, has kept Kathy isolated from just about everyone her entire life. So it's not like any suitor is going to come a-courting, right? And Heathcliff's got money. He would make sure that Linton also has money. And marrying somebody with property, true, she'd have Thrushcross Grange, but she'd also have, you know, a very comfortable situation if Linton's, via Heathcliff's, fortune were added to her own. Yes, Daniel.
2: I have a question, mm-hmm. and maybe this is something that is going to be revealed later on in the book, but is it really okay for Nellie to be telling this story that makes Heathcliff look bad? Like, at this point in time of telling the story, isn't Heathcliff technically her boss? And isn't Lockwood totally going to be like, hey, Heathcliff, guess what Nellie told me <laughs> because he's in an idiot,
4: and
1: like,
2: is it, isn't she putting her job in danger by telling this story?
4: Uh, we'll hold that thought. Is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of, you know, if we were giving a spirited, if you were a defense lawyer defending Heathcliff in the, in these chapters, is there anything else you might say to sort of poke holes in the narrative that Nellie Dean gives us of Heathcliff's deportment? Hmm. Well, there's one other thing that Nellie Dean does. In addition to destroying the letters, what else does she do to prevent the correspondence?
1: Oh, she sends a letter back through the, mail, the milk boy.
4: Mm-hmm. So she intercepts the milk fetcher to basically tell him to fuck off. No more notes. Here's the last note that's going to come out of Thrushcross Grange. And that's what precipitates, you know, Linton's li- little de- depressive mood.
1: Well, as reported by Heathcliff. As uh, like, reported by Heathcliff. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't appear that he's like super depressed about particularly that when we meet him again.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: He's like,
1: "Oh, you're here. I'm so very weak. Can you do this cuz the servants aren't doing anything for me?"
4: <laughs>
2: but but also that's just what Nelly said Heathcliff said. Heathcliff might have just been like, "Oh, it's beautiful weather today, Nelly," and then moved on. We don't know. <laughs> and
4: that is I think where Wuthering Heights is so maddening because when we get to the lies that Nellie Dean tells, it's gonna cast everything she's told us to this point in a very different light. And so the reader is left with the very difficult task of having just the entire foundation on which they placed their interpretation of all of these characters on very shaky ground. And so this is, this is where we kind of get an opportunity to question just exactly what went down at Wuthering Heights and Thrushcross Grange way back when. Now you don't have to agree with me, or you can quibble over the degree to which I might be, let's say, overly critical of Nelly, or perhaps overly sympathetic towards Heathcliff. But I think what is important to acknowledge is that the way the text is written and the way the narrative is framed enables us to ask those sorts of questions and to to sort of stew in that ambiguity it it doesn't even let the reader be wholly comfortable about the situation cuz now we 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 thought we knew what was going on but now maybe we're not so sure
1: I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced, but something that I would add to your argument if I was convinced, (laughs) if I was 100% convinced, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not completely unconvinced. I'm just not like, I I just don't know how far you can go in that direction without dismantling the scaffolding completely in a very postmodern, like sort of almost postmodern way of like, you can't trust anything anyone says. But something that actually just crossed my mind while you were talking that sort of felt actually more persuasive is one of the notes I keep taking is that Nellie Dean has a really big vocabulary for a servant. And partly that could be because Lockwood is reporting the story, but it could also be because it also she talks about being well read. She's read like every book in the library except for like something, and so then you start thinking, oh, she's kind of maybe she's constructing this story in a particular way because it's this is the part like these chapters to me and Heathcliff's, beha- Heathcliff's behavior it was so over the top and like it was very sort of almost like, he's like villain from a melodrama at this point, and I'm like oh. Yeah, so that would make sense if there's like a real person, and this is she's gonna to try to make this guy look bad, and this, the way she knows how to do it is because she's read all these books, you know, she's using a uh like tropes that were popular at the time. In order to in order to do this, I don't know that that to me, if you want to get metatextual, and, or not sort of kind of like. Looking into Nellie Dean's abilities, I, to me that. That would that would actually solve that would solve the problem of like Heathcliff is just so over the top in this section in the in these three chapters these four chapters. I'm a bad guy, and I here's my master plan, <laughs> and I will do this. Yeah, and I will tell you this because you are the narrator of the story, as yeah. Daniel pointed out in his yeah.
4: <laughs> in in his summary. Anyway, so did, did you have something to add? I oh, know your hand was up.
3: Oh no, I was just stretching. No,
4: but okay.
3: I I mean, you you totally blew my mind uh, by saying all that. (laughs) So you were right about that when you introduced
4: um, that Heathcliff might not be a bad person. Um, Well, I, I, I don't go that far necessarily, but I think that there's a lot more malice attributed to his actions on Nellie Dean's part than maybe there was... In, and again, the sort of actual events of the story, we don't know them because they're not in the text. We can only sort of pick at them via subtext. But I do want to suggest that that's sort of what the narrative invites us to do just by how it's written and what we know about the person telling it or other persons telling it. Because again, Andrew, um, three points for this observation. Yeah. Lockwood's also repeating what Nellie Dean told him so who knows how much embellishment he's been putting in there
1: yeah and he's not taking notes while she's reading to him like he's doing this after the fact too so he never, mentioned, he never mentions that he's sitting there with a notebook like a cop copying down everything she says
2: what if Nellie doesn't even exist and this is <laughs> <laughs> Lockwood just talking about himself and, Lo- and the young version of Lockwood actually is Linton
3: oh. <laughs> what
2: (laughs) okay yeah Mm. (laughs) let's go down that rabbit hole
4: it's a real hard rabbit hole to go down uh we already know that kathy's a fucking widow so unless there's i mean i guess maybe he faked his own death what am i talking about why are we entertaining this absurd line of questioning (laughs) daniel you lose two no no four points
0: for
2: for saying the only. All right. All right. Okay, fine. Two points. I'm, you you see it. I'm 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 speaking the truth, and I'm being punished for it. You heard it here, <laughs> listeners. Write in and tell us what you think about that.
4: We're gonna have the fucking X Files of Withering Heights we're by gonna, the end of get, this podcast. We're gonna
2: get we're gonna get emails about this for sure. <laughs> Write in if you if if. Teach the controversy. You know.
1: <laughs> All right. Shall we? Are we ready to move on to our Bronte bite?
4: Yeah, let's move on to the Bronte bite. Um, I went into this Bronte bite with the intention of keeping it light and fun. But as is often the case with um, not just Wuthering Heights, but the life of Emily Bronte herself, there's going to be some, oh, there's going to be some twists and it's going to be not very pleasant. So let's talk about Emily's relationship with her beloved dog, Keeper. So Emily Bronte's dog, Emily Bronte's dog keeper is something of part of the legend of the Brontes. So again, well, maybe this is somewhat apt in in light of the discussion we've just had about the reliability of narrators. Um, There's an anecdote in, it's actually The Life of Charlotte Bronte uh, by Elizabeth Gaskell, but. Basically, The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Gaskell talks about the whole family, Emily included. So Keeper was a bulldog-mastiff mix of some kind. Massive dog. By all accounts, just incredibly vicious and very, very standoffish, especially with strangers. And almost implacable. If Keeper had a mind to do something and you wanted him to move, he would growl you down. And again, massive, massive dog. People were terrified of Keeper. And Emily Bronte was a tiny, little, scrawny woman. We know from, I mean, at the time of her death, she was buried in a 16-inch-wide coffin. She was teeny, teeny, tiny. And not just at the end of her life. Emily Bronte was this little, little person But she was able to handle Keeper like nobody else could. And the anecdote we get from The Life of Charlotte Bronte uh, by Elizabeth Gaskell is that to to give Keeper the business, let him know who was Alpha, Keeper used to love lying on people's beds and growling at them (laughs) when (laughs) when they would try to get in them. It was like this constant battle to, to get Keeper off of other people's beds. And one evening... Keeper went down to lie on Emily's bed and tried to do his dominance posturing with her, and she would have none of it. Upon being told that by by the housekeeper, Tabby, that Keeper was on her bed, she went upstairs and Tabby and Charlotte stood in the gloomy passage below full of the dark shadows of coming night. Downstairs came Emily, dragging after her the unwilling keeper, his hind legs set in a heavy attitude of resistance, held by the scuffed of his neck, dialect term for you know, scruff of the neck, but growling low and savagely all the time. The watchers would fain have spoken, but durst not, for fear of taking off Emily's attention and causing her to avert her head for a moment from the enraged brute. She let him go, planted in a dark corner at the bottom of the stairs no time was there to fetch stick or rod for fear of the strangling clutch at her throat her bare clenched fist struck against his red fierce eyes before he had time to make his spring and in the language of the turf she punished him till his eyes were swelled up and the half-blind stupefied beast was led to his accustomed lair to have his swollen head fomented and cared for by the very Emily herself. What Keeper was untrainable by anyone else, and the only way Emily was able to control him was by beating the shit out of him when he tried to give her guff. And after that, he was Emily Bronte's slave. Like, there's an anecdote about how she used to train keeper to jump up and bark at strangers that she didn't either as a as a fun prank or to keep people away from the house because you know she was she also was a pretty reclusive person didn't like visitors but apparently trained him well enough that he would just scare them but not actually you know hurt them like she would just train him to jump up and make a big threatening display but always kept him under control Kind of thinking it's a good thing she didn't have any children. Jesus. Now, Emily Bronte was, and this is the really puzzling thing by all accounts of how she treated Keeper. After that, she was very tender. And Keeper was very affectionate with her in turn. But it was an affection based on the fact that she beat the shit out of him very early on into their relationship. So that's something to chew on.
2: What are we supposed to take away from
4: that? I don't know. She, like, Nobody
2: knows. She, like, like this is... She abused and traumatized a dog into behaving, but it was probably behaving badly in the first place because he... it was abused, so...
4: Sorting out the takeaway from this aspect of Emily Bronte's life is a puzzle to scholars to this day. Nobody's really sure what to make of all the dogs in Wuthering Heights and how they're wuthering heights and how they're treated in light of emily and her own dog rearing technique that's putting it very mildly
1: yeah so when like someone kicks a dog in wuthering heights it's like that's not supposed to show that they're a bad person it's supposed to show well they know how to deal with dogs don't they that's how it's done
4: this is also one of those cases where like we just talked about in in view of nelly dean there's a lot of myth-making going on in Elizabeth Gaskell's The Life of Charlotte Bronte so scholars also kind of have to sort out okay to what degree did this did this anecdote get blown out of proportion the, the the like did she beat keeper that severely but i mean it's still a bad look no matter how you slice it but to what degree is the narrative account exaggerated It's a mess. It's a mess
2: to untangle.
4: And scholars, it's an ongoing battle. What we do with this information.
2: I mean, whether or not that story was true, it seemed like the intention of that story was that we should be really impressed by the fact (laughs) that she tamed this dog by beating the shit out of it. And that rubs me the wrong way. That's
4: kind of how it was framed. It was framed more, not so much as Emily Bronte's cruelty, but as her just force of will that this terrifying beast that could easily have torn her throat out was just laid so utterly low i mean in the 19th century people were also a lot more cavalier about beating dogs just just to to keep them in line like to to show dominance i guess i mean they didn't have the language of like alpha dog bullshit but That was the idea, that if you could just show your force of will to your dog, eh, beating the shit out of it is a little extreme, but it works. I'm sorry that these Bronte bites are so depressing. I tried to make it a happy story about a cute puppy, but, but, uh.
1: (laughs) Well, that wraps up our depressing Bronte bite about animal cruelty for today. Um, Okay, let's move on to quickly do the... Path- the pathetic, the cathartic <laughs> pop quiz. <laughs> cathartic pop quiz! Okay. Readers, this is where Charlotte, Miss Charlotte has prepared a pop quiz for us. It is cathartic for her, not us. We are competing for points. This is a life and death struggle. And Emmy is almost asleep.
2: Sorry. I'm awake. I'm here. Okay. Okay. It was because the property law thing, wasn't it? <laughs> that part. <laughs> okay. What quote
4: delusive assurances does Nelly give Linton to convince him to leave Thrushcross Grange? We're looking for the delusive assurances. And That's a direct quote.
2: So you like you you want us to actually like look through the book and find it? You're not asking. Oh yes. The,
4: those questions oh, have you. I not mentioned the cathartic pop quiz is always open book? Is yes, what quote, delusive assurances. Does Nellie give, uh, Emmy, you have your hand up?
3: So the delusive assurances are that Mr. Edgar and Kathy would visit him um, and other promises ill-founded, which I invented and reiterated at intervals throughout the way.
4: That is correct, Emmy. I'll give you uh, four points for that, for being able to locate the specific passage.
3: Yay! I'm not at zero! Woohoo!
4: I think you're at one, according to my record. (laughs) I forget which one point I gave you at some point. Okay, what's Joseph's first impression of Linton?
2: That he's a, I'm paraphrasing, but that he's a girl. (laughs) Yep.
4: Correct. Two points, Daniel. Well, how about Heathcliff's response to Linton? What's his first impression? It's from sort of around that same passage. Andrew
1: that he's his property
4: (laughs) okay he's his property I'll give you I'll give you a point for that Emmy what a beauty what a lovely charming thing have they reared it on snails and sour milk fucking snails and sour milk yeah that's correct I'll give you three points for that one
2: he also like feels his arms and stuff like he's inspecting a piece of (laughs) livestock
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, speaking of livestock uh, yeah I'll give you a point for that Little detail, but and this is a bit of a callback maybe to our vocab corner if uh, you were paying attention. What kind of chicken is Linton, according to Heathcliff? Anyone but Andrew, what kind of chicken is Linton? Emmy? Oh, a pooling
3: chicken. Pulling? Puling. Pooling, I think. Pooling?
4: Was going to give you three points, but I'll only give you two because you mispronounced it. Puling chicken. Pooling chicken.
3: It means whining, right? That, that, that's what we covered.
4: Yeah, yeah, whining. Just, yeah. What is Linton doing when Nelly? I'll, I'll give you the quote, when when she says, I slipped out, what was Linton up to during that? Yes, Daniel.
2: Was he crying uncontrollably and going like, don't leave me here, Nellie. That's a good guess. And I, that, 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 that does happen. But I'll give you only a, a point
4: for it. Because that's not what he's doing when she slips out. What's the moment that she seizes to sort of sneak off, hoping that Linton won't won't notice?
3: I slipped out while Linton was engaged in timidly rebuffing the advances of a friendly sheepdog.
4: Correct. And I'll give you four points because you said the whole passage. Timidly rebuffing the advances of a friendly sheepdog. Yes, Daniel.
2: So just for clarification, that the sheepdog was humping him, right? Ew, you lose one point.
4: <laughs> for asking a question? For asking a grody question, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, we are all adults in this classroom. There is to be no vulgar references to dog humping in this class. Unless I say there can be.
2: My class, didn't my write rules. I the book. Emily, Emily Bronte put that in the book. <laughs> I'm just quoting it. it's not my fault she wrote that into the story
4: (laughs) (laughs) okay let's move on otherwise we're going to be in dog humping limbo for the rest of the podcast what day is kathy's birthday rather what date andrew your hand went up right away march 20th correct march 20th i'm going to give you three points because you were so quick on the draw how many times a day does heathcliff covet harriton there's a section where Heathcliff says he covets Harriton um, because of how, you know, manly and masculine and, and all that stuff he is. How many times a day does he do it? Andrew? Twelve. Uh, I'm going to give you minus 12 points. No, that's, that's harsh. I'll just give you minus 1. <laughs> 1. 1.2. 12 divided by 10 points. Um, that's not the correct answer. Uh, Daniel?
2: Charlotte, I just want to point out that that question was really grody. <laughs> Fuck off. Jury. 20. You're losing another point, Daniel. Correct.
4: 20. Jury for... Okay, I can't give you 20 points, but I'll give you 20 divided by 10. Same. I'll give you two points. Okay. So, Heathcliff, who... Surely a man who knows a thing or two about wooing someone named Catherine... Uh, gives some potential hot date activities that Linton can can do to 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 impress Kathy with on their visit. Some little distractions for him. Uh, what are they? What are some of the things that Heathcliff suggests Linton can do to show Kathy a good time, Daniel?
2: He's like you can show her rocks and mushrooms and things that are lying around.
4: Okay, I'm going to give you a point for things lying around, but they're not rocks and mushrooms. Thank you for raising your hand, Emmy. To,
3: like, a rabbit or a weasel's nest, take her into the garden before you change your shoes and into the stable to see your horse.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Those are some fun, some fun date ideas. Uh, Let's see. Three points. Heathcliff knows what the lady does. Those weasels. Well, I mean, he's kind of not wrong. Except, bonus point, who actually takes Kathy around to see those things? Andrew? Harriton. Yeah, it's Heriton, does it? But it doesn't say anything because
3: he was told not to swear and he doesn't know how to not swear.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, poor Harriton. I'll give you two points for that additional detail. Um, Catherine gives off a certain look when Heathcliff asks her whether she likes her cousin Harriton. What's that look? I'll give you a hint. It's a three-word phrase. Emmy? Catherine looked queer. Catherine looked queer. That's correct. Two points. I mean, she'd been at the fairy cave. <laughs> For those of you playing the home game, queer did not mean the, the way that we tend to use it today. It just means she had, a, she had an odd look on her face, as if to say, uh, there... Hemming and hawing a bit, is how I picture it. Okay, into which literary wet place does Heathcliff accuse Nelly of having dropped Linton? Well, Nelly and Cathy. Jury.
2: Slow
4: of despond. Oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, correct, jury. So I will give you f- three points for that, jury, and I'll give you a. First crack at another two. If you can tell me, which literary reference, or or which, rather which work of literature does that reference come from?
2: I have to watch.
4: No idea, Daniel. Your hand was up right away.
2: Wuthering Heights. Fuck off,
4: Daniel. Minus two points. Andrew, though, you look like you have something to say.
1: The Pilgrim's Progress. Hmm
4: and uh let's see i'll give you one point for the work what's the author don't remember uh okay uh for the extra point daniel
2: oh i just have a question for andrew since he read it and we haven't could you just give us like a brief quick Pilgrim's <laughs> <fuck of> pilgrim <laughs> no Progress? fuck oh, off no. daniel
4: no. that that can be the reader's <laughs> fucking homework <laughs> who wants to tell me who thought... who can fucking tell me who wrote pilgrim's Progress?
1: Oh, John Bunyan. That's what I was gonna say, but I thought it sounded too much like um.
4: Andrew, you didn't raise your hand.
1: <sighs> you
4: get zero points for that. All but right, yes, you that's are fine. I, 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 d- I was
1: looking it up on Google. I didn't expect. I didn't expect any points for that. I just wanted to know. <laughs> John Bunyan. No, just I, I was like, I thought John Bunyan, but I'm like, no, no, that's a fictitious character, right? Like he has a blue ox or something. That's oh, Paul Bunyan. Bunyan. Damn it, <laughs> Paul Bunyan!
2: Son of a bitch! What are you? What do you think podcast listeners at home should that be the next book we read on this podcast <laughs> write your emails in now oh god you tell us no. i
4: haven't even read the pilgrims progress in its entirety uh it's one of those things that i know i should but i have the 1678 excuse not in my century yeah. anyway yeah, it's it's a drag so are we ready to tabulate some points here let's, let's do it do it Okay, while I'm doing that, anything else to say, Andrew? I feel like you uh, usually say a little bit while I'm tabulating
1: while you're the doing that. While I I vamp here, I'll probably just cut this out so it doesn't matter. Um
4: Yeah, I don't know. I'm so sleepy. Okay, well, we'll I'll, I'll, I'll count the points quickly.
2: It's the same as it's the same as every episode, Andrew. It's nobody. It's nobody. Nope, nobody was anywhere. <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right. So in first place and securing position as teacher's pet is Emmy with 15 points.
3: Shut the front door.
4: Uh, next in order is Andrew with 13.8 points. And Judy in third place with 12. Daniel. Daniel, I feel like we should change this from dunce to class clown (laughs) because, uh, you you got five points, and most of those were because of penalties that you incurred. I'm in a mood to punish you for making us all laugh today. That's the rules of the cathartic pop quiz. What I say goes.
2: But you mean I got negative five points, right? Oh, no, you
4: got five points because you did answer some things, right? And you made some, some, some good observations. But it balanced out by, you know, the clowning. The incessant clowning, Daniel. It is beyond the pale. So um, please, please, continue it,
2: Dan. <laughs> what do you think, listeners at home? Do you want do you want the podcast to be less entertaining? <laughs>
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so Daniel put on the dunce cap, and uh, Emmy, you're gonna be assigning. I think it's I think it's Daniel's turn. I think we've got to that part of the rotation.
3: Daniel gave me this stupid spooky ghost story last time. This is your chance for revenge, Emmy. I think you need to do celebrity impersonation.
1: Maybe you could do your summary section next time in a celebrity yeah. voice. That would kill two birds with one stone.
3: Yeah.
2: I have to learn how to do a celebrity <laughs> voice, I guess.
1: <laughs> didn't you impersonate Donald Trump in one of your puppet shows?
2: Yeah, not very well. It, doesn't, no
1: it, doesn't, it, didn't say, it didn't say a good celebrity impersonation. <laughs> right. We know who the teacher's pet is. We've got the class dunce. the homework has been assigned. Daniel will be doing next week's... The assigned reading. Oh, the assigned reading. Yeah.
4: I'm going to give you a little bit of a break. We're going to read the next three chapters. So 24, 25, and 26. And those are a little bit shorter chapters. So get a bit of a reprieve for next episode.
2: Cool.
1: Alright, so we'll be back next time with chapters 24 to 26. Daniel will be doing the report in the form of a celebrity impersonation. Well, that stuffs our seventh episode into the mouth of a cannon and fires a warning shot across someone's bow. I'd like to thank our guide, Charlotte Sampson, for putting up with us for today's recording. Uh, her patience is infinite. <laughs> <laughs> I would be remiss, though, if I failed to thank my fellow Wayward Readers, Daniel Wishes, Emi Do, and Judy Ito. As I mentioned in the intro, Daniel has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, of which I am a big fan, so go and check that out wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Ryo Namegaia for being Ryo Namegaia. Also thanks to Arden Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. The show is edited by me, and finally... Thanks to you our listeners. Do us an even bigger favor now and turn someone else onto the podcast because I want more than 4 listeners. If you want to support the podcast with cash, um head over to the Okama Theater Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or better yet, at this point, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Please, only five-star reviews. If you want nuance, you're reviewing the wrong medium. And finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, the best kisser of the Bronte family. And we'll be back soon for episode seven. Check out the show notes. See you then.
4: Class dismissed.
1: Our wayward readers are in alphabetical...
0: I was the only one at Emmy's campfire. You guys weren't
4: there. I told you, I can't go close to fires.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, listeners? Do you want us to just talk about family law for a solid hour? Or are you with the rest of us and want to move on to another subject? Write your emails now.
1: This podcast is copyright 2020, the Oklahoma Theatre Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission.